Well, good morning. We are in week two of our NLC, he NLC Heroes series, and we're talking about ordinary people that have lived some extraordinary lives. And what we're going to do this morning is I want to introduce you um, to Beth Hayes, who's been around Next Level Church for a while. Now, how long have you been at Next Level Church? About four and a half years. About four and a half years. And currently, what are some of the areas that you're involved in at Next Level Church? I am on the hospitality team. I'm one of the leaders in the auditorium environment. So you're one of those people that make it so fun for us to come to church every Sunday? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that, that the depiction of your life now is totally different um, than where it once was. And so I want us to go back in time a few years. And um, the tough question is, I want you to go back to the hardest time. And can you describe for us what your life was like at, at that moment? Sure. Um, it's been quite a few years ago, but I was in a very abusive relationship to a man who was an alcoholic and addicted to prescription painkillers. At the same time we were in um, battling that, my oldest daughter, who was four at the time, was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor. After uh, surgery, radiation, surgery again, chemotherapy, four days finished with that, um, that treatment, she relapsed again, and at that time we were given a terminal diagnosis. She was six years old and she passed away six months after that. How... How do you go on from something like that? I, first of all, I, I try to imagine myself in a situation similar, but then there are things within me that I don't want to imagine that. And I, what I can't imagine is me shutting down. What I can't imagine is me almost flipping a switch that just says, I just, I don't care anymore. How, how did you respond in that situation? Uh, that was never really an option for me. I remember the final days of her life, I would just lay in bed and just pray to God that I was learning the lessons that she was sent here to teach me because I knew that there was no way that her life was pointless, and that was the only way that I could envision that. What would you say were some of those lessons that you, you learned through that? I started going to church again about a month after that, and I was baptized a year later. My youngest daughter got baptized a year after that. And I went to my pastor at the time and basically asked for his okay to proceed with a divorce. Shortly after that, got out of a very tumultuous relationship. I imagine that in the middle of that situation, um, there had been the concept of unforgiveness. And it would be so hard to forgive whether it's your ex-husband, God, the situations. How did, how did you deal with that? Again, that never seemed an option not to. About a year ago, I got a letter from my ex-husband asking me to forgive him. And I shortly replied that I had forgiven him a long time before that, not because he had asked um, and not because I necessarily thought that he deserved it, but because yeah. that's what God wanted from me as a Christian. Wow. Now, I know that I know that things have changed. I know that things have gotten better. I... Um, what is, what is life like now for you? Describe that for us. It seems like to me that the only thing that's not different is the fact that I have a strong, unwavering belief in Christ. Um, I am happily a single mom to an amazing 14-year-old daughter. I have an incredible group of friends that support me and challenge me all yeah. the time and a great family. And ironically, now I work for the American Cancer Society and get to give back every single day to the people that are afflicted with cancer in any way. That, that's incredible. Because, 
and this is the reason why I wanted you to, to be here today, of because of the example that you have been, even in the, the most horrible of circumstances, um, you've given us an example to live by, an example to follow, and it's for that very reason that you are our NLC hero, and we honor you, and we thank you, because what you do for us is so much greater than what you may ever understand. So thank you. Can we just show our appreciation this morning? Thank you. My joy come down, down off of these clouds. All these heroes come and go. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Welcome to Next Level. So glad you guys are here. My name is Mike. I am the associate pastor here at Next Level, and I'm excited to be speaking today. Uh, for some of you know, I was in Kenya with a team. About five of us went to Kenya um, for two weeks, the first half of this month. And so we're really excited to be back. I want to tell you about some of the things that were going on there. Um, it was cool. God allowed us to really be a part of investing in the lives of between 60 and 80 pastors there. And just kind of teaching them and training them. And these are guys, talking about heroes, these are guys who are heroic. And these are the guys that for us, have just on, they're on the front lines, they're doing it. And so we kind of took some of the things that we've learned and said, we don't want you to look exactly like we look because it won't work where you're from. We want you to take this and make it figure out, how does this work in your context? So we went there and invested in the lives of pastors, and it was cool. It was great to be able to hang out with them and talk to them. Um, another thing that was, that was pretty awesome is that there was a girl on the team who actually goes to another church, but she, she said to me, we're, we're on the coast. There's the Indian Ocean right there. She's like, I want to be baptized. And I'm like, Indian Ocean? Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do this. So we went to the Indian Ocean. Uh, girls baptized. Another, another cool story um, is there was a guy on our team who's a surgeon. And so he, we were trying to set up so that he could do surgery there in Kenya over and over again. We were trying to work with it. The hospital's there. It didn't work out. The government didn't work out. It was going to cost a lot of money. It would be a big old hassle. And basically the hospital's there said, it's not, worth, it's not worth the time. It's not worth the trouble. And so he's like, well, I feel like God is telling me go on this trip, so I'm going to go anyways. And what happened was he's there hanging out with some kids. He's in the slums. Of course, he's a doctor, so he's, he's analyzing everything. He just, he just thinks about it. And there's this girl, little girl. And she has this thing on her head. And he kind of examines it and looks at it and says, I think I know what that is. I think we can do something. And, of course, he's a surgeon, and so he brings all of these tools with him wherever he goes. And there's something like going on a mission trip to Africa, and he's got two IV bags. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, what do you think's going to happen here? He's like, just in case. I'm like, okay, just in case you need to cut us open. That'll be weird. But so he, he, he said, I think I know what this is. He found a private hospital. And went into this private hospital and said, hey, you have, you know, I'm a surgeon, I'm from America, Can any chance you would let us use your, your operating room? And they said, you know what, this is a private hospital, so we can do whatever we want, so come on in. So they took this little girl, and she lived in the slums, like they'd never been to the doctor to ask what was wrong, because they don't have the money for this. And so they brought her in, and he did a surgery, and ended up being a big cyst right on the top of her head. And she would have lived her life, and, and the missionaries there, they said that she would have been made fun of. She would have been just completely kicked out of any social group. That everyone would have, she, she would have been ostracized from her, from kind of all social events. And so we, AJ came in, did a surgery, took out the cyst, and now she looks like every other kid. It was like the coolest little thing. And the mom, the mom was just like, was 
was absolutely blown away. And that, you know, talk about heroic. That was heroic. A couple other things that we saw that were heroic is there is there are two heroes in Africa that I'm actually going to show you a picture of. The first one is a guy named Bishop. And when you see this picture, you're going to see that to see him, to think that he's heroic is a little bit weird because if you, if you look at him, he's kind of got like the two-tone, two-different-design pimped-out suit on. That's kind of cool. And, and he actually drives a Mercedes as well. So in Africa, this is a very weird thing that a pastor's driving a Mercedes. It's kind of, we kind of looked at it, and at one point, it was so awesome. He was preaching. He said, I drive a Mercedes to shame the devil. I'm like, yeah. That's why my wife drives a Toyota Corolla. Take that, devil. Kia Optima, shaming that devil. So, um, so he, so we walk in thinking, <laughs> we walk in and he's driving Mercedes and kind of wears these pimped out suits, and we're thinking, we're thinking just like you would think. Oh, come on. I mean, really? And we're thinking he's going to be all about himself. And what we found out was that this guy was probably one of the most generous people, not just in Africa, that we've ever met. We go back to our hotel room. It's the weirdest thing in the world. We go back to a hotel room, and they say, okay, a pastor came and paid for your hotel bill. It's like 200 American dollars, which is a lot of cash there. And then the second night, we did, like, revivals. We did a couple nights where we spoke at their church. And the, the second night, he takes up an offering for us. And I'm looking at the missionary. I'm going, no, we're not. I'll tell you what, we're not taking that money. And the missionary said, listen, this is, in their culture, you can't not take money. Like, if they want to give you a gift, they can't take it. The next night, took up another offering for us. And we're thinking, this guy is crazy. We don't know what's going on. And I'm thinking, what are we going to do? We can't leave. I mean, to, for us to go to Africa and leave Africa with more money than what we came with? <laughs> nice shirt. Thanks. The, uh, they bought it for me. It's working out. Um, so we're just like, what is going on? Then the next morning, well, the, that night we went to the bishop's house. And I'm like, and the, the team, they're funny. They keep complimenting his suit, thinking, I hope he gives you his. And then you'll have to wear it on Sunday when you come to church. And I'm like, I'm not wearing one of those pimped out shiny suits. But he's like, we hope you do. But, but so he goes into his bedroom, comes out, and gives all the guys shirts. Gives all the girls chai tea. And so we're like, this is crazy. Then the next morning, the next morning, someone knocks on the door of the hotel that we're staying. And they bring us a goat. So here it is. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm sorry, you don't know that we're from America. I mean, we, how are we going to get a goat back? But we're like, how is he giving us a goat? But this guy, the, the missionary that we were with, he said, this is the most generous pastor, not just with us, but in his community that I've ever met. And for us, we kind of walked into it thinking, this guy is going to be, I mean, he's kind of a, you know, whatever. But it ended up, this guy was like the most generous heroic guy leading his community when we talk about serving the community he's like we're doing this we're going out and we're doing this and it was just amazing and just really cool for us so what are we going to do here's the question that we had what are we going to do with the extra money now that we have that we're not paying our hotel room and he keeps giving us money you know it's just weird and what are we going to do with a goat so we called this lady this lady's name is Eunice she's 31 years old and she lives in the slums which is a bad part of town and there are kids, because in their community, basically they have school fees, and in order to send your kid to school, you have to pay school fees. And so she, so there's all these kids in the bad part of town, in the slums, where they can't feed and they can't, they can't send you to school. This is, she is in the area where, have you heard about starvation? I mean, we've all heard about starvation, where kids die because they starve to death. 
This is where she lives. And she said, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I can. I don't have a lot of money. The way that she gets money is that she cleans out people's septic tanks, which is basically a hole in the ground. She's a restroom in. She goes and cleans them out. She gets money so that she can feed kids. She has like 30 kids who come. She teaches them Bible stories. She found, a, she found a road sign on the side of the road that's just knocked down. She grabbed it. She turned it around. She made it a whiteboard. She teaches them Bible stories. She teaches them English. She teaches them all kinds of school stuff so that she can try to help them. She feeds them at least one meal a day. And we're talking to her. We're like, how do you have the money for this? How do you feed people? How do you eat? She said, well, sometimes I don't because these kids need food. And she's the type of person, I asked her, I said, do you know who Mother Teresa is? She's like, no. I'm like, well, you're just like her. She's like the type of person that, like, you don't want to shake her hand because she's so holy and you feel so dirty. You just try to stay away from her. Um, She was heroic. And so in Africa, it was amazing to see her. And, you know, I think about her. I think about Bishop. I think about the heroic things that happen. I can't help but think, but as kids, for us, as kids... We all want to grow up to be that type of person. We all want to grow up to be a hero. A hero is someone who fights the evil for the sake of good. I know when I was a kid, I used to play with G.I. Joes. I used to play with Transformers. I used to play with Thundercats. Anybody? Thundercats. Oh, come on now. Um, I used to play with He-Man by the power of Grayskull. You are He-Man. She-Ra. She was a, a big thing. That wasn't me. Whatever. Um, I used to collect comic books, X-Men, um, Spider-Man, all those sorts of things. And when you're a kid, man, you just want to be you want to be a hero. And you, you, everything in you, you dress up like it on Halloween. You dress up like Spider-Man and Batman and Superman. And you just want to be this heroic figure. And everything in you goes, man, when I grow up, I'm going to be a part of something huge. I'm going to be a part of something big. And for me, like, it's still in me. Like, I just think, I want to be a hero. Like, I go to a movie and I watch, I watch a movie where the hero is so strong. <laughs> and I leave the theater and I think, I hope some girl gets beat up on the way home so that I can help her. Like, because I want to be the hero. Not like, like, I don't want girls to get beat up, but I want to be the hero. So I'm thinking, I hope something bad happens to somebody. Like a car wreck. God, don't kill anybody, but hurt them so I can save them. Um, <laughs> because being a hero is in us. Being a hero is in us. That's my point. That's my point. And from being a kid, that is what we want. Since we're kids, we want to be the hero. But unfortunately, not everyone gets to play the role of the hero. For every hero, there is a villain. For every person who fights for good, there are people out there who also fight for evil. For everyone who tries to do what is right, tries to do what is good, there are people out there who are doing what's evil. For every Eunice who takes care of kids and feeds them and just does whatever she can to teach them, there are kids. There are people who expose kids and hurt them and do things that are wrong. For every hero there's a villain. The interesting thing is that with as many villains as there are, no kid ever wants to grow up wanting to be the villain. I mean, no kid ever wants to grow up being a villain. No one ever, as a kid, thinks, man, when I get older, I'm just going to hurt people. It's not the way kids think. I mean, think about Saturday morning cartoons. Not only about you, but Saturday morning cartoons for me, they were the sort of thing where I would go and I would watch them, and you just sit there, and it's like, I used to, with my stepbrother, we used to watch Karate Kid the movie, and after Karate Kid the movie, we'd fight each other. Like, we'd, like I remember one side of the room and he on the other side of the room, and I don't know why, this wasn't very Karate Kid-ish, but we'd put our head down and run towards each other and slam each other's heads 
It's not very karate. It's not very karate, but we do it because for us it's like, and we think, see ourselves as a hero. And as kids, we want to be the hero, and we see ourselves in the hero. And no kid ever watches a cartoon and think, "Man, I hope those Ninja Turtles. I hope they die." You know, we we are all pulling for the Ninja Turtles. We're all pulling for the good guys. We all want Spider-Man to win. And yet, isn't it true that our world is full of villains? Regardless of what continent, country, city, place, or wherever there are humans, there are those who want to expose and hurt those that they can. And for all of us, if we went through and told our story, we all have story of villains. We all have someone in our life that if we were to communicate our story, we would talk about someone who's a villain in our life. For some of us, it's a mom or a dad. For some of us, it's an ex-wife or an ex-husband. If we were to tell a story long enough, it would come out, and that's the role that they play in our life. For others of us who are old enough to have a kid who's married, we would say that our, our daughter was doing so good, but then she married this guy. Our son was doing so good, then he married this lady. For others of us, it's a boss. Even for some of us, it's a pastor or a religious leader. But if we were to tell our story, our spiritual story, it would come out, they play the role of the villain in our lives. So here's my question. If most kids want to grow up to be the hero, and if no kid ever wants to grow up to be the villain, how have we ended up with so many villains in our world? If all kids want to grow up to be the hero, and no one wants to grow up to be the villain, if as kids we sit in front of the TV and we want to be the hero and we relate to the Ninja Turtles and we relate to the good guys and we want to be the hero and we're going to dress up like the hero and be like the hero, how has it happened that we have so many villains? The way that it's happened is that it has happened unintentionally. No one wants to grow up to be the villain. No one sets their sights at being the villain. No one sets their sights and thinks, man, when I grow up, I want to do something bad. We all want to become the hero. So so for me, I think, if people become the villain unintentionally, how do we avoid becoming the villain in our story? And that's that's where I think it's interesting and we need to talk about. Because if everyone sets out, even the bad people, even the people that are in jail for doing bad things, if everyone wants to be the hero and everyone grows up thinking, I want to fight for good, I want to do what is right, I want to go in the direction where I save people, I promote justice, I do good things. If everyone starts off that way as kids, and yet some people become a villain, they do so unintentionally, so I think we need to make sure, okay, how do we make sure that we do not unintentionally become the villain in our story? How do we make sure that we don't become the villain in the story of our children? How do we make sure that we don't become the villain in the story of the people around us? Well, there's a story in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we're going to look at a guy named Joseph. It wasn't Mary and Joseph, but it was an Old Testament guy named Joseph. And he is a guy that if there is one person that I think could be set up to be the villain, it's him. That if there's one person who could be set up to do wrong, to hurt people, to take revenge, it is a guy named Joseph. And let's look in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, and the, the verses will be on the screen. It says, now Israel, which is Joseph's dad. Israel is, um, he, he's kind of the one who the, the whole nation is named after. He's Joseph's dad. Now Israel loved Joseph, his son, more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him from his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. 
So his, so his dad liked him a lot, which made his brothers jealous. His brothers decided, you know what? We're going to go ahead and we're going to sell you into slavery. Joseph walked out to bring him food. They're all working. He walked out to bring him food. His brothers grabbed him, sold him into slavery. Joseph ended up going to a, a country, and he, uh, ended up going to Egypt, but he was sold to a guy named Potiphar. And he became a slave because his brothers were just jealous of him. They were jealous, so he became a slave. So he's a slave in the house of Potiphar, and it, the Bible talks about how he just was, basically took over the whole household. Until one day, Potiphar's wife came to him and tried to hook up with him. She said, come, come to bed with me, come to bed with me, come sleep with me. Joseph said no, day in and day out, until one day, she, she was so aggressive, she grabbed him by his coat, he left his coat, ran out the door, then when Potiphar got home, his wife said, look what your servant did, he tried to rape me. I have his coat to prove it. Potiphar did what any husband would do, and he threw Joseph in jail. And said, you're going to go to jail. So Joseph found himself sitting in a jail cell. Because his, because his brothers were jealous of him. So he became a slave, then he ended up in jail. And then he sat there, and then one day, a couple of people that worked for Pharaoh came into the jail. And it was the cupbearer, the person who tastes everything before the Pharaoh does to make sure it wasn't poisoned, and then the baker. And then one night, they both have dreams, and they can't figure out their dreams, and Joseph hears them talking. He says, hey, I can tell you what your dreams mean. Baker, bad news, you're going to die. Cupbearer, better news, you're going to be restored. But he says, and then when you're restored, here's what I want you to do. Can you just get me out of here? I mean, I'm, the reason why I'm in jail right now is because I haven't even done anything wrong. My brothers were jealous of me. They sold me into slavery. I was falsely accused. When you get an ear with the Pharaoh, when you get an ear with the king, the ruler of the land, will you just ask him just to let me go? It's not a big deal. Just let me go. The cupbearer said, I definitely will. I promise with everything in my heart, I'll do it. Then he leaves jail and just completely forgets about him. So one day, two years later, the Pharaoh has a dream. And he has a dream, and basically, he can't figure out the dream. He asks a lot of people, what does this dream mean? No one knows. And so it goes, and there's some time, and they just can't figure out what the dream means. None of the wise men in Egypt know. And then one day, the cupbearer remembers. <laughs> and he goes, oh, hey, Pharaoh, you remember that one time? It was so awesome. When you sent me to jail, um, I, uh, I, I met a guy in jail. And I had a dream, and basically he interpreted my dream, and it came true. And remember, you, you hung the baker, and then you, you restored me. He said all that would happen, and it did happen. Maybe you need to ask him. And Pharaoh was so desperate, he calls the person in jail to come and help him interpret his dream. So he tells Joseph the dream, and he says, I, I don't understand what this dream is. And basically, Joseph interprets it. He says, by your dreams, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years, you're going to have tons of food. Then you're going to have seven years... And you're going to have no food. It'll be a famine in the land. So here's what you need to do. You need to appoint someone who knows what they're doing to make sure that over the seven years where you're going to have a lot of food, to make sure you save some so that you have enough food for the seven years where you don't have any. And so Pharaoh, I love this, in, chap in verse 41, chapter 37, it says that the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and as wise as you. And then he says, so you're in charge. He says, you're going to be number two in the nation. I've known you 30 minutes. Sounds like a good idea. You know what's going on. God is using you. I'm going to completely put you in charge. And if you know this story, you think that's the end of the story. And if you know the story, it's easy for us to think this is the end. Joseph was a slave, and now he was in jail, and now he's number two in the complete, the whole nation of Egypt. 
the whole ruling nation. And it's easy to think this is the end of the story, but the story goes on. And what happens, because, because even though this is such a God story, what happens just blows me away. What happens next? And one day what happened was, is that the famine spread, not just in Egypt, but the following or the surrounding lands. And one day, and I don't know how this worked, but there were some guys walking off in the distance. And they were walking up, and they were from Israel. And Joseph saw them, and they were his brothers. Joseph looked a little bit different, so he looked, his face didn't look different. They didn't recognize him right away, but Joseph recognized him. And he's sitting there, and he's talking with them. And in this moment, Joseph had a choice. Do I just wipe them away? Because for, for a lot of us, Joseph got sold into slavery by his brothers, then put into jail, left forever. So when his brothers walk onto the scene, it's kind of like, no, 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 no. You sold me into slavery. You're going to die. I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's, that's how the story seems like it's going. And even for us, if we were to read the story and read it that way, we'd be tempted to think, that's God's will. You sold them into slavery. You put them in jail. Of course you kill them. And so they walk in, and it's funny to see their reaction. In chapter 45, verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Of course they were terrified at his presence. They just realized, oh no, we sold you into slavery, and now you are like number two in a huge nation. And look what happens next, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. I mean, this is the end. I mean, this is the end. Um, when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Oh, we're kind of hoping you forgot about that part, Joseph. <laughs> and now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and, plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save lives by a, save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. Joseph had a choice. He could have completely wiped out his brothers, and he had a choice. In this story, am I going to be the hero, or am I going to be the villain? He had a choice, and not only his choice, if you were to zoom out and look at the whole story and you read the whole, the whole context of the Bible, he could have completely taken out the nation of Israel. He had the power, the ability, his brothers walked in, he could have called all the nation in, and he could have completely wiped them out. He could have wiped out the nation that God said, this is my nation, these are my people, and from the nation of Israel there was the king of David, there were the prophets, there was Jesus. And Jesus came out of Israel. And because Joseph chose to be the hero and not be the villain, those people came out of the nation of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, how does a guy who sold into slavery from his brothers and then put into jail, have them walk up, and he not wipe them out? I mean, that would be my tendency. How did he do it? The answer is that he forgave them. Like Beth forgave. He forgave them. The difference between a hero and a villain in any story is that the hero has the ability to forgive those who have hurt them. The difference between a hero and a villain is forgiveness. 
This is Joseph. In spite of slavery and jail and a tough life, and I'm sure he was probably roughed up quite a bit, and he didn't live the life that he wanted, and he was just a kid. He was just a kid that his dad loved. In spite of him going through all of that, he chose to forgive. Now, think about someone or anyone that you would classify more as a villain than a hero. And ask this question. Is there someone that they're holding unforgiveness towards? And if you were to find out, if you were to have a conversation with them, you would find out the answer is always yes. And the answer is always yes. And do you know why? I mean, none of us likes to hold on to these things. No one holds on to this. If you were to ask them, why do you hold on to this? Why won't you let go? Why do you keep this unforgiveness holding? They would say, they, they would describe it in such a way that make you think that they were angry. But if you were to ask them a little bit deeper, you'd find out it's not anger. It's pain. And people feel pain, and they have this pain that someone hurts them. And over a long period of time, because all pain, long-term anger, or all the pain gets turned into anger, and all long-term anger is is mismanaged pain, and you have this pain that you feel, but in order to cover it up, because we can't deal with pain and can't have it around us all the time, we have to be angry. We have our anger that covers it up and builds a wall so that we don't have to deal with our pain. And so instead of being hurt by it, instead of admitting hurt, we admit anger. We force anger out, and we say, He hurt me, and I can't believe they caused me that pain, but because they caused me that pain, I'm dealing with it with anger. And instead of actually admitting I'm hurting... They decide, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be mad. I'm going to, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, this right here is not, I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm going to be angry, and it consumes them. And before too long, the pain that they've had to cover up with anger is causing them to be angry with the people that they care about. And it's causing them to be angry with the people that they're around. And people look on, they're hurting them. Because they have pain that they've not dealt with. And it has turned into anger. When you don't forgive someone for causing you pain, you will turn it into anger, and then anger will turn you into the villain. So in order to avoid becoming the villain, we must forgive. In order to avoid becoming the villain, we must forgive. Um... My stepdad growing up, um, I had a, I had a stepdad. My mom's not married to him right now, but she was married to him. And he was my stepdad that I was with during the times when I needed to figure out how, what a man was supposed to be like. And he wasn't engaged in our lives. And he was an alcoholic, and I had to teach myself how to shave. I had to teach myself how to treat women. I had to teach myself how to, I mean, imagine all this. As a kid, you're trying to figure out, what does all this stuff mean? What are all the changes happening? What does this mean? How am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to react? And he was, he was abusive physically. He was abusive mentally. He was abusive, I mean, just every way that you could think of abuse. This guy was in it. He was just, a, just not the type of dad that you would want. And for years, that pain, I covered up with anger. And the way that I treated people, the way that I treated the people around me, the way that I treated people, treated conflict, was anger. And I would be mad, and I would be angry, and if you ever challenged me, I would get angry, I would yell, I would be a f abusive physically, I would be abusive in every way that I could to shut you down, because I have pain. I don't want to deal with this pain, so the only way that I know how to deal with it is with anger. For years, 
I dealt with anger. And if, and if you would have asked people around me, what's his problem? They would have said, he's angry. I wasn't angry. I was hurt. The only way I knew how to protect myself was with anger. It consumed me. But I knew that I did not want to become the villain. I knew that I did not want to become that type of person. So I knew in order to do that, I had to forgive. I had to let go. And so I have, I, I wrote down four things that have helped me do that. There are four steps of heroic living that I feel like is necessary for us to forgive. And, and I feel like this is, these are four that have helped me immensely. I think that they'll help you. I think that they'll be right on. It's not a comprehensive list, but these four things have helped me to walk in forgiveness and be able to forgive him and go through that. Um, the first one is realize that forgiveness is a process. I have a friend who has heart disease, and he went to the doctor, and the doctor basically said, listen, in order to fix your heart, you've got to change the way you eat, you've got to change your exercise, and you've got to change, basically change your whole life. And if you want to change the way that you feel in this heart disease and what you're going on and everything, you've got to change your lifestyle. You can't change what you do at lunch. I mean, you can change what you do at lunch, but changing one meal isn't going to do anything. You need to change your lifestyle in order to continue, in order to live healthy. Well, forgiveness is the same way. Forgiveness is not a one-time sitting down and we're going to pray and we're going to say, God, I forgive that person. Because the good chance is you'll wake up tomorrow and that anger and that pain and that hurt will still be there. Forgiveness is a process. And if you've been holding on or if you've been holding on to unforgiveness for a long time, it may take a month, a week, a year, two years, maybe longer than that, I don't know, to let go of that. But realize that forgiveness is a process. Number two, speak out forgiveness. Speak out forgiveness. Spoken word evokes emotion and solidifies a commitment. It evokes the emotion. And it solidifies the commitment that you have. Not only that, but it brings your head into alignment. It brings your head into alignment. You know how, like, sometimes you've got to talk yourself into it? I remember I, I used to go to this lake in Indiana, and there was this 40-foot drop-off. It was like this wood platform, and you would jump into the lake. And I remember standing up there thinking, you're crazy. Is someone, is someone trying to kill me? I mean, this is 40 feet into the water. And I know that 6-year-old girl did it, but, man, this looks... Whoa, this looks like a far away away. And you got and it's kind of like you back up and you're like, you can do this. You can do this. Girls are watching. You can do this. Um, and you have to talk yourself into it. That's because when you, what you're feeling sometimes isn't the right thing. And words can talk yourself into it. You know, the football teams, you know, we're in last place and we're, we're playing the person who's in first place. And they all get in the huddle and they jump around. Ooh, we can do this. Yeah, we got this. Oh, yeah, we're taking them down. It's like, you're not taking them down. But they need to talk themselves into it or else they're just not coming out in the field. So a spoken word can take your head and bring it into alignment. Number three, understand that forgiveness doesn't require both parties. Did you, did you hear that in Beth's story? She said her husband wrote her, her ex-husband wrote her a letter, said, will you forgive me? She said, I've already done it. I've already done it. Because forgiveness does not require both parties. And for me, this is huge, and I hear this all the time. People say, I can't forgive. What he did was too bad. What she did was too wrong. They've never said they're sorry. They've never asked forgiveness. They've never come to me and said, Mike, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. I'll change the way I act. They've never come. So until they come to me, I can't forgive. 
But for me, if I were to wait for my stepdad to come to me and ask for forgiveness, if I were to go to try to find him, go to ask him and say, Jeff, you have to apologize. You have to say you're sorry. You have to tell me what you did was wrong and the way you treated me. You, you, you have to admit there was something wrong with that. And if I waited for him to do that, and if I went to him, most likely he wouldn't say anything. So if I had to wait for him, and if it required both parties, then I would have this pain that would never go away, and this anger that would go in my heart. And 20 years from now, because I would be the villain, 20 years from now, my son would stand on a stage like this, he would tell his story, and in his story, I would be playing the role of the villain. And if I required him to apologize to me, then I would become the villain in the people who are close to me. And my wife would tell her story, and I would be the villain. My son would tell her story, and I would be the villain. Some of you would tell their story, and I would be the villain. And if it required both parties, if it required both people to do it, forgiveness could rarely happen. But it doesn't require the other party. Because forgiveness is not a thing where you just say, well, everything you did is okay. Forgiveness is saying, I will not be the villain. I will choose forgiveness and I will be the hero. Regardless of what you do, regardless of the way you live your life, when my son tells his story, I am going to be the hero, not the villain. Number four. Be dedicated to the hard work of forgiveness. Joseph, imagine Joseph sitting in the jail cell. Had everything completely taken away from him, and he didn't even do anything. He's sitting in the jail cell, thinking about his brother, stewing over his brother, thinking about that whole process. He didn't want to forgive him. When I, think, when I thought about my stepdad, I didn't want to forgive him. Because it's hard. It's easier to be angry. But it's hard. Forgiveness is hard to do. But if we don't want to be the villain, if we choose to be the hero, then we have to be dedicated to the hard work of forgiveness. We have to be dedicated and say, you know what? I don't want to forgive. It's hard, but I'm going to do it. Listen, 20 years from now, your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter, nephew, niece, family member, they're going to tell their story. You're going to play a role in that story. Today's your day to decide. Will I be the hero? boss is going to go home from work this week. The people who work for you are going to go home this week. They're going to tell their parents or their, their family a story. What, will you, what, what role will you play in that story? Today, we have a choice. What role will you play? Will you be the hero? Will you fight to be the hero? Song. And everyone, if you have your bulletin, I want you to 
write somewhere in there. Take a pen. If you're dealing with this, if you're getting this is the thing that you're dealing with, I want you to write their name. I want you to write their name, and then sometime this week, I want you to put it somewhere that you're going to see on a regular basis. If you want to, like write it on the inside of your bulletin, just in case the person you need to forgive is next to you, but write it somewhere. Write it somewhere in your bulletin so that you can put it somewhere this week and so that you can see their name. Because here's what I want you to do. Every time, I want you to write it on it, write it there, and every time that you see their name, I want you to speak out forgiveness. Mom, I forgive you. Dad, you weren't even around. I forgive you. You hurt me. You did something. I forgive you. You caused me pain. You caused me anger. I can't believe you've done this. I've had it my whole life. It's been completely messed up. I don't even know how to handle it. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't even know how to go on from this. I forgive you. You took advantage. You did things wrong. I had dreams. I had hope. I had aspirations. You took them away. I forgive you. I will not be the villain in this story. I will be the hero. So I forgive you. I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I forgive you. So as they play this song, write down that name. 